We will be looking in uh, the book of Acts today. Actually, actually, Acts chapter 2 will be primarily what we'll look at, a portion of it at least. And um, as we get rolling, this will be this month of February. I had began the year saying that we're going to study baptism. And then you might think I was lying (laughs) because we ended up getting so involved in Acts 16, we never really got to uh, talking about it in detail. So by God's grace, I hope to uh, begin uh, looking at baptism uh, as that first step. Uh, following Christ, uh, an example, a, a symbol, much like the symbol of our meal this mor- morning, an outward sign of an inward or spiritual reality. I, um, as we are uh, people gathered uh, under the foot of the cross, we are constantly, like our forebears before us, the great Protestant reformers, and even some before them, constantly seeking to reform or recalibrate our walk to God's word as revealed and our practices conforming to what the scriptures themselves have to say. So today we're going to look at the subjects of baptism, that is who should be baptized. This has unfortunately been quite a controversy in the church over the last many hundreds of years, really. And um, as an ordinance or ceremony, sometimes I think the practice, the very way in which we use these, both communion, we talked about that last April, but also the, the baptism as well, ironically or unfortunately, sometimes the way in which we practice or don't practice it undermines the very thing that we're, think, we're seeking, to glorify God, uh, to promote the salvation of sinners, of anyone and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved, that we might multiply disciples of Christ. And uh, I want to uh, encourage us as we try to work in a time, it's always been this way, that some are presumptuous uh, of the blood of Christ, and, and others are, are continuing to drift back into religion. Uh, I think you, you detect that own, your own tendency, of the gravity of your heart to make yourself uh, to, and man in one uh, degree or another the point, rather than Christ uh, and relationship. My question is, who should be baptized? Usually the question is um, framed a little differently in that, should we baptize babies, right? Should we look at infants? It's called pedo-baptism, infant baptism. And um, a lot of churches do that. Our church has been a little different than that, and it's 167-year history. And before that, of course, hundreds of years, too, from the Baptist tradition uh, is, is on there. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that and address that uh, question. I, I guess I, in a way, owe you, uh, as some of you have known me for 15 plus years, others of 15 months, and there's a few of you here that have known me for 15 minutes. So, <laughs> uh, you know, this is not about me. It's not even about us, really. It's about Christ, right? It's about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what John, or what uh, Luke recorded by the Spirit in Acts chapter 1. Uh, he even said it, I read it earlier, uh, when Jesus, he was reported, Jesus says, saying, you've heard from me that John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, he said. That's Christ saying that. So, uh, and, and baptism with the water is, is a part of that. But the Holy Spirit is the, is the key that is the Spirit of God dwelling within his people. Uh, with all those who are, who are turning to Christ in repentance and faith. And um, I have for the most of my life been, a, been connected to believers only uh, baptism type churches. If you might think, what does that mean? Believers only meaning we re- wait and uh, encourage baptism uh, when someone is professing faith uh, for themselves. 
are waiting for, whether a child or adult, when they're at that point of repentance from faith and turning and trust and reliance on Christ, then baptism uh, should be um, uh, should be practiced. That being said, I also should tell you that actually the seminary I went to was a Pado baptist seminary. So uh, I have a great deal of respect, uh, obviously, probably implied by the choice of my seminary, uh, for those who, who take a different approach on this. In fact, I think the one thing I would be most eager about for you and me is not to drift into, if I may call it, a censorious spirit. That is a, a restrictive sort of spirit. I see that happening in the church in our time. I think it has happened in every generation that when you get a conviction on something, and hopefully it's based in God's word, that God has revealed something, and so you take your conviction and your, your thing, and you run around, and you try to restrict everyone else around you with your conviction. That's called religion. <laughs> that is called religion. You restricting other people with what you have come to see. And to me, that is just the reason why I would only dare to preach and to lead my household. That's a big enough task, by the way, because my children will take their cue from me, right and wrong. And you, my children in the faith, so to speak, will take your cue. That's a lot more households. A lot. That's why it says, Jesus said, be careful. You know, if you are called to this role, you'll be accountable for much, for more. So I, with great humility, come before you and I want to announce... Three words so you hear clearly. I might be wrong. That's actually four words. I might be wrong. <laughs> I might be wrong. I hope you would say that of yourself too. I might be wrong. On this issue or any other issues. So what do we do when we're wrong? I, I want to be careful that we're not imposing on others our convictions on particularly debatable matters. Secondary matters. Uh, and yet, we do need to develop convictions, even on secondary matters. And I, that's partly why the Lord, I believe, brought us to Acts 16, because it's very evident that, that early on in the very first sermons that Paul and Silas, that the apostles would deliver, we see that on Pentecost, in the very first sermons, like if you have one shot at presenting someone with a message, one of the first things that all the apostles did is talk about baptism. So that must mean it's pretty important if it's going to be in the, one of the first sermons, right? So it's not an unimportant matter, but it shouldn't be overshadowing the key thing that Christ saves, not water. Jesus Christ, it is the name of Christ that saves, not baptism. Uh, and that's partly why I'll just be... Um, in my own sort of, sort of trying to have discernment, even with regard to my own children, uh, I think, actually, I'll be honest, I'm not going to make the case, but I think that a strong case can be made for paedo-baptism in the New Testament, and a strong case can be made for believers-only baptism. Actually, they both can be, and, and, and sort of, sort of strawmanning each other's arguments in order to pick at each other isn't very helpful at all. It, it really isn't very helpful. That being said, we do have to make sort of decisions and practices. And for my own sake, uh, I, I think it, it causes me great pause that, that the believers, the, the giants of the faith who've gone before me differed on this thing. Of course, we Baptists would point to our, uh, someone we have come to cherish a great deal, a guy named Charles Spurgeon. Of course, he was a fantastic uh, preacher, just a blessing for God and his church in the late 1800s and is still blessing the world uh, with a believers-only approach uh, and other things he taught. That was not, of course, by any means the main thing. But there are other giants of the faith that I also cling to. Martin Luther would be one. We all owe a debt to Martin Luther. 
uh, and to John Calvin and to the reformers of the 1500s. Uh, and for me, John Newton, uh, he was another Paedo-Baptist. I, I read his letters. I'm very much blessed by his, his writings and his heart. Uh, he is a mentor for me, though he's in glory. Um, and we ought to be very careful, because uh, I, I remember, think about Martin Luther. He recalibrated, reformed the church, and yet though he got the key thing, that is that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, he did not then press forward and say, now if you were baptized in the Roman Catholic Church, which taught incorrectly in his time on that main, core, vital, worth separating on issue, he did not require Roman Catholics to be rebaptized. Nor did he stop the practice of paedo-baptism. My own lineage, the Brumbaughs, we, we can claim our faith 500 years ago. One of the first priests to join this man uh, is that thing. And partly what brought me to this text on Acts 16 is because I want it to be true where it says that Lydia was baptized because the Lord opened her heart and her household as well. And when the jailer, I'm hoping, I'm rewinding the tape. If you don't know what I'm talking about, perhaps go back and read or watch a couple of the sermons from last month. But the jailer also, it says that when he came to Paul and Silas, he said, what must I do to be saved? Well, let me just read it. Can I read Acts chapter 16? Why not tell you? I mean, because there's power in God's word, so you don't think it's just my reporting secondhand. How about you listen to the Spirit of God as laid down in Scripture? Acts 16, verse 30. Paul and Silas are in jail. And there's a jail. Could have been a jail break, but by the Holy Spirit's power and the, the peace and the presence and the gospel and the, the identity that they offered in Christ to, the jail, to those other prisoners around them, but to now the jailer and his family, it says this in Acts 16.30. The man brought them out of the prison and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Great question. Here is the apostles' answer. They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So, you look at the Old Testament, you look at the New Testament, the trajectory of the work of God, is it that he would restrict his spirit, that there would be fewer and fewer people who have the fullness of God? Or about? Not at all, right? There is, there's liberty, there's, there's generosity, right? God liberally gives his spirit now. And that's why I'm going to take you to Acts chapter 2. And so part of the reason I wanted to go to Acts 16 is I would like to nurture the hope in my heart that those that are distant from God now or not walking and sync with his spirit as I would desire or I see they could, that they would come to the roots that their household that they are somehow connected to know in Christ that they would turn from their sins, that they would know him, that it would be true that the gospel is not only for us but for our children as well. Do you see? And we have every reason to think that God saves not only us individually in isolated cases. He does do that. But when he begins a work in you, is it any shock and surprise that if he's going to work on saving you, that he would save others that you care a lot about? I mean, do, do not our prayers have power? Does our Father in heaven give to us a stone when we ask for bread? Does he give to our, our child a snake when all the while we're asking they would become a fish? That is a Christian, Right? God hears our prayers. Part of salvation is working out the gospel in our households, 
in his time, and partly why we must not be censorious, I'm using a big word, or restrictive in what God might do in other people and other generations, is because he's been so extraordinarily patient with you. Or with me. <laughs> I've learned it's love in 1 Corinthians 13. Doesn't barge in, doesn't demand to have its own way, but love is patient and kind. That's how the Spirit works in his people. Um, partly also why I continued last week to talk about, in the beginning of Acts 16, you might have thought it was a deviation, other than looking at the chapter itself, from preparing you to, and I to think about baptism, but the issue of circumcision with Timothy, to me, is very relevant. And you might think, what? <laughs> How does circumcision relate to baptism? Well, Paul himself makes that connection in, in Colossians 2. And this is one of the key texts that Pato Baptists would lean on. So they too are arguing from God's word, as I will be arguing in a moment, for believers uh, only baptism, or that we should uh, primarily emphasize that. But in Paul, in Colossians 2, says this, In him that is in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So he connects in his mind, his heart, by the Spirit. He's connecting circumcision and baptism to one degree or another. Now he goes on and says that the symbolism is really like a Roman 6 symbolism, being buried with our Lord Jesus in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. It's more of that than it is a cutting off or a washing or a cleansing. It's far more about dying to self and being raised in Christ, you see. We'll talk about mode another time, but I want you to say, see that the apostles themselves adopted different practices depending on the context. So if we look at circumcision for the church in Galatia, the apostle by the Spirit forbade the people in Galatia from getting circumcised. But in Timothy's context, he actually got him circumcised, which means that discernment is required on these matters. In fact, isn't that the whole point of the New Testament in its general trajectory and argument? As you are filled or baptized by the Spirit, you less and less need childish rules. Now you have the liberty of following the Spirit of God, being able by God's grace and His Spirit's guiding both in your study of Scripture and in its application to your specific household, to your situation, to apply not restrictive rules, but the freedom of Christ. Knowing when to circumcise and not, so to speak, when to baptize and not. That is quite interesting, isn't it? That it works this way. And I want to be very careful because we each of us have varying backstories, exposures, histories with the term baptism. And perhaps, I hope by God's grace you have been spared some of the battles, the intramural battles that have occurred in the Church of Christ over baptism. I, I, I regret that. I agree with my mentor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who said he, he too regretted uh, that baptism would have ever made a point of denominational identity. Uh, it shouldn't be. In fact, if, as I'm about to read to you, Acts 2 is all about not deviating or, or differentiating from one another, but un union in Christ, unity in the Spirit. It's meant to bring people together, not divide us. So it's not a total surprise that Satan would attack this pivotal initial ordinance or sacrament of the church. 
So baptism is important, as I said, uh, with Lydia and the jailer, for instance, proof that he early on in the, the apostles, when they were proclaiming the good news of Jesus, the gospel, baptism was like the right away they did that because they heard it from the lips of Paul and Silas. And you'll see that in Acts 2 as well. But again, when the, the jailer asked, Jesus, asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? He doesn't mention baptize, baptism in that specific sentence. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus. And I will say this, partly why, um, I'll put it this way. I believe that paedo-baptism is, is valid, that, that the believers who are going to disciple their children, their kids are going to grow in the grace and knowledge of God because you're discipling, but also because God's blessing is on your household, because he wants them every bit as much as you. Not in every case. The Old Testament teaches that. It's not, it's not an automatic thing, right? King David was a faithful man, but there was a Manasseh, and there was a Josiah. There's all kinds of variation in a specific house, right? So it's not an automatic thing. But God is gracious. And if you're raising your kids to, in the context where when you gather for family worship or your prayer, and it's really more about Jesus than about rules that you're promoting to keep your kids minding their manners, if it's really about Jesus and beholding and you're singing as a family, hallelujah. How can your kids not be captivated by the king of this universe who can save them from their soul, their sins? Of course they're going to fall in love with him. You fell in love with him, right? Mothers, fathers, present to your children Christ, your grandkids Christ. It is he who saves and not baptism. And that's partly why uh, I don't feel quite the need to baptize my own infants. Uh, because I would personally... I valued my own uh, being able to choose that for myself, the experience of being uh, baptized when I was nine. Um, and I'd like my kids also to be able to remember their baptism. I say that as an issue of discernment for me in my house, not a requirement on you, okay? Do you understand the difference? I hope by the Spirit you're understanding what I'm saying. In Acts chapter 2, there's this marvelous description of how the gospel works, and it's the same word household that we've been looking at once in a while in, our, in Acts chapter 2, or Acts chapter 16, pardon me. If you turn to page 910, you'll find Acts chapter 2, and I love because the same question, the very same question by the early audience uh, on Pentecost was asked. Verse 36, for instance, says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, this is Peter preaching, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Right? Can you imagine that moment? <laughs> ah! Gulp. Verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Do you see? Same kind of theme, same question. What must we do to be saved? These are Jews, right? These are God-fears, as I'll show you in a moment. In verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. As we think about who are the candidates, who are the subject, who should be baptized? 
I mean, almost reversing order, I would say, anyone who wants to abandon a crooked generation and save themselves from crooked generation, you should be baptized. <laughs> that, it says that, that those, uh, those who received his word and wanted to ab- abandon ship with the sin of crucifying the Messiah and of obstinacy and stubbornness before God and a refusal to humble yourself before the Messiah, his one and chosen son, uh, they, they abandoned themselves uh, to their sin, from their sins, and gave themselves over to Christ. Right? I, I wonder if you might indulge me a minute in Acts two thirty-seven through forty-one. If I could reread that again, but I'd like to read it in the southern drawl of of the second person plural, because you and y'all, it, it matters to read this carefully. And if I, if I might, you can follow along in your version uh, in the English. Unfortunately, if I could make one change to English, it would be to have a better second person plural uh, in different tenses. Uh, but that's just me. Uh, but listen to me. I'll try, I'll try to give you a sense of the Greek behind this, the actual words that are written written and recorded uh, for us in verse 37 now when they heard they were they heard this they were cut to the heart they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles brothers what shall we do and Peter said to them y'all repent and each one of y'all's be baptized every single one of y'all in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of y'all's sins And y'all will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for y'all and for y'all's children's And for all who are far off, everyone, everyone on whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save y'all selves (laughs) from this crooked generation. I understand why we don't do Southern because that's really strange, y'all selves. But anyway, uh, you get the point though. And verse 41, it says, so those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The first thing to notice, and partly why I would lead us in being, you know, pressing into believers only baptism, waiting uh, to to uh, use the sacrament, the ordinance of baptism, till someone has decided themselves or expressed faith in Christ, is because it says explicitly that those who received His word were baptized, and that their souls were saved, that there were souls added. You know, a soul is something that you have. You don't have a household soul. You have a household of souls. Right? There's a difference. Uh, and, and even in the Greek, it says, each one of you is a very singular, each one singular, be baptized. That's in verse 38. But I also want to go with, with great humility about these things because I will admit that in the archaeological evidence and the things that have been written, that in those first centuries when the church was forced underground up until Constantine in the 300s, I think it was 313 when... Um, 313 AD, when, the, when, when Christianity was recognized as a legal religion, up until then, there was such persecution that the church was forced underground. And so it might not be surprising in such duress that, that the baptism occurred often in very private and in very secure ways with sprinkling or with infants, in part because it meant so much. And also, if we're honest, in a culture like that, it, it costs so much to be baptized, to be identified with Jesus Christ, that, that there was less ambiguity. The entry, I guess you might say, the, the, the price of admission was so high that if you would dare to be baptized, then clearly it's an evidence of the work of Christ. 
And in Acts chapter 2, that was the case because if they were to be baptized into Christ, they would be kicked out of the synagogue. There would be financial implications to their decision. And that's why the, the believers in those early days had to sell so much because those who went to Christ lost often their houses. They lost everything. They lost connections to family. They lost jobs sometimes. I think maybe that although we have lived mostly of my lifetime, we've lived in a time where it just seems like you can just do what you want almost and the church will, will baptize almost indiscriminately. If You may not be able to be baptized here, but I'm sure you can find a church somewhere that would be glad to baptize you, even if for your, the wrong reasons. Uh, we, we, we struggle with that, but I want you to see something that in verse 38 where it says that each one must be, uh, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, there is not a single instance of one person person being baptized for another. In other words, in God's house there are no surrogates. And that's why believers' baptism has grown such, so in such prominence in a culture like ours. There's a reason why that a lot of the church plants are believers' baptism. It's not just because we get the gospel or we want to promote the gospel. It's also because in an American culture where individual, individualist faith, even you know, choosing it for yourself, is, it, it connects with our heart, but also because you aren't saved because your grandma was a believer. You aren't. You must have repentance and faith too. Now, is there a legacy because your grandma had faith? Yes. I can vouch personally, and I'm not going to have the guys raise hands about how many mothers and grandmothers' prayers kept us from killing ourselves in our teenage years. But many of us have benefited from the prayers of the saints. Haven't we? And I remember Lydia, when she was baptized with her household, I remember that Joshua in the Old Testament said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It is not wrong that you make demands on your children or your grandkids, that they would know and love Jesus Christ. That you would present Christ as praiseworthy, as honorable, that in our house, we respect the Creator. We don't say certain things. We don't do certain things. We don't reflect stubbornness of heart. We rather humble ourselves before the living God. In Acts chapter 2, it's describing who was there. And I just real briefly, I want to read the passage about where uh, Joel's prophecy is, is brought out. In Acts chapter 2, verse 5, we read this. You're wondering, who are the people who got baptized? Fortunately, we have a lot of data, so we know who was baptized. Verse 5, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And then we're going to see here, it lists a great variety of, of people with language and background to give us the point that this is a sort of international moment. This is a community of nations almost who've gathered of tribes and tongues and people who are fearing God, who are some Jews who've been sort of scattered in the dispersion, but some just God-fearers are there, right? Uh, you can read that paragraph for yourself. But then uh, Peter stands up and he says something marvelous. Listen to the beginning of his sermon, which I think is meant to be the whole point of baptism in part and how it's meant to unite people rather than divide them in Christ. Peter, verse 14, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the people saying, men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days, which we live in, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. 
Your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor of smoke. The, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved." This whole, the whole point of this, this message is, yes, you, you killed your Messiah, repent and be saved. And, and it's not a restrictive thing. It's baptism is this beautiful thing where the restrictions evaporate in Christ. I mean, it's something you probably just don't even think about. It's an extraordinary thing that it's not just men who are baptized, but women as well. Because circumcision in the Old Covenant was restricted just to men. Something new, something expansive in the generosity of God. Not only that the whole point of, this, of the, his sermon is that anyone who would call out to Christ can be saved. And here we are in our time, in, this, in the church of our time, bickering about whether we should apply baptism to this case or that case. Is that not completely like beyond the point of Acts 2? The point is this, that anyone, not everyone, but anyone can be saved because any person who thou, who shall call upon the Lord shall be saved, him or her and those connected to them, their households. In the last days, he says, pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now this eventually will come true. Revelation tells us that all tribes and tongues will be gathered at the throne. Every single tribe of, of humanity recognize, calling out that Jesus is Lord. But here it says sons and daughters are included in that. By the way, it says that apparently age distinctions, generational differences evaporate in Christ. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams, it says there in verse 17. In verse 18, distinctions about, about, about uh, economic or, or power dynamics or, or social status are evaporated in Christ because it says even on male servants or slaves, even on female slaves, I'll pour out my spirit which is just marvelous because it means that the Spirit of God is not isolated to, I guess you might say, the professionals. Right? It's not just prophets, the Elijah's and Elisha's now, or the David, who's the king, or the preacher. It's, his Spirit is meant to be dispersed. Regard, and, and it's beautiful because it's, it's a both and. Both the king and queen and presidents can be baptized and the slave. This is not restricted to the highborn or the lowborn. Anyone and everyone who wants to be saved can be baptized. That, that's partly why it was so beautiful what happened in Philippi or in the church of Antioch. You have people of varying colors and, and language-based, you know, uh, heart languages. They, they, they found unity in Christ. I'll just finish with a, a passage from Galatians. If I can find it. I think also, because I can't seem to find it, that, that uh, since baptism is meant to unite us, anyone upon whom the Holy Spirit may fall is a candidate for baptism. Think on that sentence for a minute. Anyone upon whom the Holy Spirit may fall is a candidate for baptism. Yesterday, the men, we, we heard someone at the last talk was about a gentleman, and it was talking about a guy who had cancer, he was dying, and, and his, his parting gesture to his disciple, I'll use that word, his protege, his disciple, was this. Remember that, guys? Right? 
He couldn't say anything. He was so sick, he could not speak anymore. But he gestured, sort of like Elijah to Elisha, my mantle upon you, my disciple, was his kind of, that's my paraphrase of what this man meant. I, I think, there, there, whatever limitations people have, a disability, there are people who cannot speak. Should they not be allowed to enter the baptism waters? Of course not. Right? You might be mute. You might struggle. You have disabilities maybe. That's okay. The water, the baptism of water is for anyone who will trust in Christ, whether they can articulate it or can only do. <laughs> That's all you need. Me too. And in fact, isn't that kind of why uh, I think in general, I'm just not comfortable restricting baptism and overly criticizing and analyzing someone's motives and all this sort of thing. Of course, you want to train them and help them understand what they're getting themselves into to the degree and the age to which they are of understanding. But I don't think it's helpful to be second-guessing someone's motivations and repentance of faith. Is it real? Is it not real? I think you do more harm in restricting their impulse to get baptized than you do in perhaps accidentally overindulging it. I would rather trust that the Spirit of God will use an early faith, however small and un immature or unpacked it yet, yet will be for God to use that and they will begin to grow in their knowledge and the love of Christ. I think that the male and female servants, the young men who had visions, the old men who had dreams, I know that young men when they have these visions and old men when they have these dreams don't always understand what the Spirit gives them. And I'm among a group of people who are sinners saved by grace, who when I got into the water did not fully comprehend and understand the magnitude of what I was getting myself into. <laughs> if I had known, you will have to give up your vocation if you make Jesus Lord. You'll have to leave engineering. You'll have to leave this. You'll have to leave that. I would have maybe delayed baptism wrongly. I, I have at times wrestled with the Lord and took him three years to persuade me that he had a better idea for my life than I did. Uh, but I don't regret him winning the day. In Galatians chapter 3, I will finish our, my sermon with this, these words again to a church that Paul restricted circumcision to. But he talks about what life is like in the spirit. In Galatians 3.23, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What a marvelous moment we live in. In this, I think specifically our congregation. I wonder if I could, how many of you were baptized as an infant? Would you raise your hand? Look around, y'all. Right now, put your hands down. How many of you were baptized as, as a, you made the profession of believers only baptism? Raise your hand. Okay, now this is the real fun one. How many of you experienced both? <laughs> Don't you see why one size doesn't always fit all? Yeah. 
Now I'll make a case why we want to get y'all immersed <laughs> uh, later on. But my goodness, for me to restrict what God might do in another fellowship, it would be not only wrong, I think it would be out of sync with the trajectory of God's spirit in saving his people, whether Lutheran, Baptist, Amish, Roman Catholic, whatever. God is at work in his people. Praise the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that our differences, our distinctives, whether we're men or women, children or adult, young or old, whether we have a darker skin or a lighter skin, whether we can talk, whether we can't talk at all, whether we are healthy or sick, none of these things are the key things. It is Christ that saves. He unites us. You unite us, Jesus. Oh, grant that we might not drift toward bickering or fighting, fighting or, or overly censoring our neighbor in our convictions. Yes, Lord, let us build convictions from your word. Let us argue from the scriptures and build a case, but also remain humble and always be able to say, I might be wrong, but Jesus is always right. Oh, thank you, Jesus, that the, the various ways in which everyone in the sound of my voice is out of sync, not as fully mature, not as walking in sync with your spirit moment by moment as we could be, that you cover us by the blood. You are working in our lives. You are working in our household. We cling in faith that you haven't given up on those we love. Please rescue them from their sins. In your time and in your way, by whatever means you would choose. We just want to be in heaven eternally with them. And to bow with them, admit that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For Christ's sake, amen.